Last week we said that 1 Corinthians teaches us how to apply the gospel. It covers issues that you've wondered about, church trauma, culture wars, gender identity, doctrine. 1 Corinthians shows us how to maintain unity in the local church amidst a very divisive world. And 1 Corinthians lays the groundwork for a healthy church to grow in today's world. And today we're going to begin going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, beginning the first nine verses. Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word, friends, it stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. I got a call recently from a parent who wanted me to fix their child. In anguish... She cried, she pleaded, she couldn't stand the fact that she wasn't able to control her daughter anymore. Her daughter was making decisions independent of the family, and she was charting her her own course. Can you help her change? She finally asked me directly. And I politely told her that it is not my job to change anyone, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to work in her heart to believe and apply the gospel. And I am glad to help her daughter learn more about Jesus. And the mom yelled at me. And not long after that, I received another call from another parent. And then another. And another. Then another from a wife about her husband. And it was a reflection to me that many people, not just parents, don't apply the resources that they have available to them in Christ. It was a reflection that sometimes people can't draw healthy boundaries between their identity and personhood and of the person that they want to fix. Sometimes we have a self-centered view of love. Sometimes it's a reflection of their lack of trust in that other person. And I struggle with this. Like so many of you men, I want to fix things. When I jump into a fix-it mode, Lauren will say to me, Blake, 
I don't want a solution. I want my husband. Paul teaches that at the very heart of 1 Corinthians, that it is not your job to fix people. It is your job to point them to Christ. And the joy of your spiritual journey will depend upon your ability to so rest in your identity in Christ that you do not take on the anxieties of other people. Oh, be empathetic, yes. Oh, care for them, yes, with a shepherding ear. But you do not take upon yourself the anxieties of another person who has decided to disobey God at his word or to choose a path that you may not have chosen. The main point of the sermon today is that it is not my job to fix people. It is my job to point them to Christ. Now, how do we do that and how does 1 Corinthians show us that in this text? Well, Paul shows us that he does it personally. He shows us how to do it corporately. And thirdly, he shows us that we are to do it gratefully. Personally, corporately, gratefully. Let's look first, personally. Paul was a well-differentiated pastor. That's, a, that's a, a word, that's a loaded word that means that Paul was able to stand in the midst of the anxiety of his churches and he was able to direct them toward the beauty of the gospel without taking upon all of them their own trauma and their own hurt and their own anxiety and their own uh, worry and their own shame and their own guilt and their own social concerns and their own political concerns and their view of what they should do in the midst of controversy. And this church, too, ought to own the gospel personally to such an extent that we're able to stand amidst a divisive world and we're able to say, we know who we are. So to understand how Paul did this so well, I have to go take you back to Acts chapter 18 and tell you the story of how this church emerged. In Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 11, it says that Paul spent 18 months in Corinth in the early 50s A.D. during his second missionary journey. And in Corinth, he planted a church and he rose up and discipled leaders. And one of those leaders was a man named Crispus, who was a Jew. He was the leader of the synagogue. And Crispus came to faith in Christ. And when Crispus came to faith in Christ, he left his role as the leader of the synagogue. And a man rose up to take Crispus's place, whose name was Sosthenes, another leader of the synagogue. And there was a Gentile in the town whose name was Justice Titius, and he came to faith in Christ. And Paul recognized that amidst all the opposition of the people in Corinth who were leading in the synagogue, they were concerned about him, and they were, they were causing incredible opposition to Paul preaching the gospel of grace, that he moved the headquarters of his mission from the synagogue to this house of a Gentile named Justice Titius. And this just enraged the Jews. It enraged them. And they went to Galileo, who was the proconsul of the time, that was the, he is the, the, le, the chief legislative officer in Corinth. And the Jews brought Paul before him and they said, look at what he's doing. He's causing dissension in this city. Do something about it. And they were trying to set Paul up to be subject to Roman legislation. Galileo said, you can read about this in Acts 18. He said, he is disobeying your laws from what I can tell. He's not disobeying mine. 
And so you do something about it. My hands in this matter are clean. And the Jews were so enraged that their ploy did not work that they then took Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and they turned against him and they beat him up in front of the Roman proconsul, Galileo. I wonder that Sosthenes later, when he heard Paul preach the gospel, he was like, man, I'm out of here. And Sosthenes trusted Christ. And so it's remarkable, isn't it, that when you read Paul called to be, by the will of God, an apostle of Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, who was once the leader of the Jewish uh, synagogue in Corinth. And then Paul takes Priscilla and Aquila, and he leaves Corinth, and, and he goes to Ephesus, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. You can read all about this in Acts chapter uh, 18 and 19. And he goes on to Cyprus, and then Paul goes on to, to Jerusalem and Judea. And then Paul returns to Ephesus, where he strengthens that church, and he disciples many people there. He spends three years in Ephesus, and toward the very end of those three years, Chloe, her people, bring news to Paul when he's in Ephesus that that church, Paul, that you planted back in Corinth, that place that Sosthenes got beat up, that place where they tried to get you uh, arraigned by the Roman court, oh, that place, that place is coming undone. There are people who are divided over uh, food, whether they should eat kosher food or not. There are people who are divided over the unity of, of, of there's groupies, Paul. There's people who really like Apollos, who's this amazing young leader, this incredible preacher who's so effective, People like Apollos, and they're saying, we follow Apollos, and we follow Paul. And like, like there's, there are people divided about the kind of like pastors they follow. And, and there's a man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And there's all kinds of, of sexual liaisons going on with temple prostitutes in Corinth. And gathered worship, Paul, gathered worship is a mess. People are coming to the Lord's table before others, and they're, they're getting drunk. People are standing up and they're giving words of encouragement to the congregation and then they're getting interrupted by other people. There's no order in it. So, so Paul in Ephesus sits down to write what was the second letter he'd written to Corinthians. We'll talk about that later on. But for us, it's the first letter to Corinthians. And what he tells them is just frankly amazing to me. Because, friends, this church is in deep trouble, and they are messed up. And the first letter that Paul wrote back in AD 49 to the Galatians, Paul basically starts it off like this. Hey, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle of Jesus. And grace and peace to you. Now stop it, and I'm ashamed that you have left the gospel. And the Galatians were divided over legalism issues that was at the core and the heart of the gospel. And here in Corinth, they're divided over that and so much more. And notice how Paul, remember he writes Galatians, and he writes 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then he writes 1 Corinthians. Notice how Paul, in the fourth letter he's ever written, notice, notice the way he's changed his tone. He points them to Christ. He doesn't try to fix them right off the bat. He doesn't say, stop it. You guys are screwing this up. Become who you are. No, what does he do? Notice how he personally has so imbibed the gospel that the first thing he says to this mess of a church is he says, God has called and he has gifted you just like he's called and gifted me. 
I'm an apostle, not by the will of men, but by the will of God, verse 1. And then he says in verse 7, grace was given to you, Corinthians, that you are not lacking in any gift. We have different gifts, but we don't lack what we need to start serving God now. God has called and he has gifted you. How hard that must have been for Paul to start there. But he continues. He says, God's gift ought to humble you to the dust. You were enriched in him with all speech and knowledge. Verse 5. You've been blessed to communicate God's word, and you have been blessed with rhetoric, rhetorical skills that are just amazing. They're off the charts, Corinth. I mean, this is the place where we debate good ideas. You've been given all these amazing gifts, and those gifts should humble you. And he says, verse 8, it is not your impassioned worship experience, though I'm not against impassioned worship experiences, Paul says. It is not your ability to raise money or your ability to um, know cultural trends, although that's fine and great if you're looking at those through the lens of the gospel. That's not what sustains you. What sustains you is Christ, verse 8, sustains you. He will see you through. He's got you. Look at verse 8. It is Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. And not only that, but he will present you guiltless. He will take you before your father, and he will present you pure and blameless before his father. With arms outstretched on the cross, he removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. Don't you see Paul's like shepherding heart? For this church. Personally, he was not trying to fix them. He was pointing them to Christ. And then he says, you're part of the fellowship of Jesus. You're called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, verse 9. Paul personally accepted that it was not his job to fix them. And dads, I want you to know that I'm with you in the struggle. It is not our job to fix our children. I know sometimes they do things that embarrass you. I know sometimes they make decisions that are hard. But your job is to point them to Christ, to show them by your example and to lead them. And yes, of course, use words of admonition and encouragement. And yes, discipline. Yes, of course. But when they begin to make decisions, don't rescue them from their consequences. Paul doesn't rescue them from their consequences. He declares to them what they've been given first. And I think this church can use a little bit more of that. There were not the people in the church trying to fix each other, trying to get their views on this or that issue lined up when there's room in the gospel for various opinions. It is our job to remind each other what they have in Christ. It is our job to point people back to Jesus. In fact, I'm not talking about us doing that out there. I'm talking about us doing that in this room. Do you hear me? Us pointing people back to Christ together, pulling people closer, not pushing them further away. In your community groups, talking about hard issues together because you love each other. Not ignoring issues just because they're convenient. Comfort and running from conflict will crush any local church, and especially this one. It's our job not to fix each other. It's our job to point each other to Christ. 
And it's our job to be empathetic. Yes, be empathetic. Of course, be empathetic. But be so secure in who you are in Christ that you're able to continue to lead your life with respect to the gospel, even when you're going to disappoint people. And future officers of this church, if you are not okay disappointing people, you will not make it very long as an officer of this church. It is our job to point people back to the gospel again and again and again. And that is what Paul begins to teach us here. Paul says God has given you gifts according to his will, and those gifts will humble you. It is Christ who sustains us to the end. And Paul points them to Christ by showing them the riches that we have in Christ. And secondly, he reminds Corinth, the church in Corinth, that they are to be separate corporately. That they are to be set apart together. Notice in verse 2, it says, to the ecclesia of God, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Ecclesia just means gathering. It was a Greek word that meant the legislative regular gathering of people to define how they are to rule themselves. And Rome picked up that concept in having regular legislative sessions called ecclesias. And Jesus in um, Matthew uh, 16 or 18, when did he call Peter? Peter, upon you I will build, I think it's 16 or 18. Peter, upon you I will build my ecclesia. Peter picks this concept of the church up and he says, this gathering of people I will set apart for my fame and for my glory's sake. The church of God that is in Corinth. You are sanctified in Christ, verse 2. Hagiosmenois, to be sanctified, means to be set apart. That word in that context doesn't mean that you're perfectly holy. It means that you are distinct and that you are different. You are set apart for holy use. God sets his people apart by covenant sign. Israel is set apart by their circumcision from the ways of the world. And he sets us apart today through the sign of baptism in the visible corporate church. We are set apart. Paul says that in this context, we are to be set apart from the world. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you are distinct. Um, when you think about sanctification and you think about sanctified, they're used different ways in the New Testament. And so, have any of you ever had a storage unit where you put your stuff? Like, you know, if you go to a storage unit and um, you see it's just full of people's stuff, right? We just put stuff in storage units. And to be sanctified, to be set apart, means that you are, you are raising your door, you're opening your storage unit, and you are saying anything in there that you want to clean out, sorry, anything in there that you want to clean out, you're welcome to clean out. I am available. I'm set apart. I'm available for you to clean me out. But that doesn't mean that your storage unit is all completely cleaned out. It means that your door is open, that you're willing for it to be sanctified. That's what he means in this context. Storage unit door is open. You're saying, oh, I'm distinct. I'm different from all the other closed doors of the storage unit. And in that storage unit, Jesus can have whatever he wants. There are no shadows. And the process of sanctification is Jesus going into that storage unit and actually cleaning out that storage unit, slowly but surely, working with you as you pull things out and you clean it out. And one day we will be fully sanctified and we'll be glorified. But in this context, the word sanctified just simply means to be set apart, to be distinct from the world. And Paul says that is who you are. 
Not only are you the church, the ecclesia, not only are you sanctified, but you are called to be saints together. Paul says that you are corporately called to be in actuality, which you already are in reality before the Father in heaven. You're called to live together in real time. What you are already positionally before the Father in heaven. And that's impossible until glory, of course. But we are to lean into that. And we are to love and care for each other. As though we were truly God's set-apart people. Because you are. Now, Paul personally doesn't try to fix them. Paul points them to Christ. Paul corporately doesn't try to fix them. He points them to the resources that they have in Christ. And then thirdly, he does it gratefully. Paul spent 18 months pouring his life into this church. And he suffered great personal cost in Corinth. His own people. Remember, he was the student of Gamaliel. Paul was Saul before he was Paul. He was a Jew unlike any other Jew. And his own people turned against him in Corinth. And he left the Jews and went to the Gentiles in Corinth. It came at great personal cost. And it would have been so easy for Paul to have started 1 Corinthians out the same way he starts Galatians out. I'm ashamed that you're leaving the gospel. But instead, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. That in every way you were enriched in him. Paul gives thanks. Can you, can you imagine what the church would be like in the world if it was more grateful? If it stopped trying to like pander to the overall consensus and it just gave thanks for the people who were there. Were people who didn't feel judged when they came to church. Where we're just so glad you're here. And if you're here, we are so glad you're here. If you're new, we are so glad you're here. Come to the fellowship lunch with us. Like, we could use a, bit, a little dose of that, can't we? Of gratitude for each other. And I wonder if there's somebody in this church that has influenced you or helped you grow or somebody that you might just send a note to and just to say, hey, I just want you to know I'm thankful for you. Somebody at community group this week that you can look at and say, hey, I know we don't know each other well, but I, I've been, like, learning from you, watching you from a distance, and I just want you to know, man, I'm really thankful for you. I thank God for you. And would you at the same time recognize that your spiritual growth is dependent upon our corporate life together? We cannot do this alone. Paul starts out 1 Corinthians and he says, it is not my job to fix you, it is my job to point you to Christ. And when that happens, real change begins. Paul is like the person who refuses in the midst of rejection. When they say, you're not as, as good as Apollos, he doesn't say, stop yelling at me. You must be nicer. Instead, he says, if you continue to yell at me this way, you can choose to do so. But I will not choose to be in your presence when you act that way. Paul does not say to those who are at the Lord's Supper and, and gotten drunk, you've got to stop drinking. It's ruining that family. Ruining that church. You're wrecking our lives. No, he says, you may choose to not deal with your drinking if you want, but I will not continue to expose myself 
If this is in your family, you would say, I will choose not to expose myself or our children to this chaos. The next time you're drunk, we're going to go to the Wilson's house that night, and we will tell them why we're there. Because your drinking is your choice, but what we put up with is ours. Paul does not say, you're a pervert if you look at pornography. That is so degrading. What kind of sick person are you anyway? Instead, Paul says, I will not choose, a wife would say this to a husband, to share with you sexually along with images of naked women. It is up to you. I will only sleep with someone who's interested in me. So make up your mind and choose. Do you see the difference of how we tend to respond to certain things? We tend, we tend to want to be empathetic toward those who suffer and we get into this fierce cycle of being the recipients of their victimization. Paul resisted fixing them. And throughout the letter, you're going to learn that he points them back to Christ and the riches that are theirs in him. He doesn't simply say, stop it, you're embarrassing me. He says, if you're embarrassed by something, see the depth of your own sin and look to Jesus and run to him because only in him can you be satisfied. And it's a painful thing to maintain healthy boundaries in the gospel. But if we keep the gospel at the center and if we still see no fruit in our family's life as we try to help our children see the gospel, then you are with Paul in this letter. Whenever you don't see any fruit in those that you are so desperately praying for change in their life, open 1 Corinthians and read it. And you can say, Paul, I know how you must feel. You're not alone. And then look to Jesus, who wrote a love letter to you in blood upon the cross. And he says to you, I know you too. Come to me. And let's have a meal together. It is not our job to fix others. It is our job to point them to Christ. And we can only begin to do that when we do it personally, when we recognize who we are corporately, and when we do it gratefully because of the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus, just as he reminds us about that in the first nine verses of Corinthians. So Jesus says, I know what you're feeling. I know what it's like to want to fix somebody so bad. So let's share a meal together. And let me wrap you in his arms, in my arms, Jesus says, and draw near to you at communion. And so let's prepare to do that now. Father, would you take us and would you wrap us in your arms of love, reminding us that in communion, you're here. And for those families in this church, especially that are grieving over children that, have, that are not professing faith in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us that it is not our job to fix our children, not our job for wives to fix husbands, husbands' wives. It is our job to point each other to Christ. And so, Lord, as we come to the table, would you remind us yet again that you know what we are experiencing and you say to us I know and I love you so much that I gave my life for you and if you're here today and you have not yet trusted Christ would you use this opportunity as you hear Pastor Scott fence the table 
to believe, to trust in Christ for the first time, and then come to this table in joy and gladness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.